It's January 11th, 1851, and it's dry and cloudy in this small riverside village. Monsoon season is coming soon to southern China, but it's not what's on everybody's minds this year. Something far more destructive looms in their thoughts than a little rain. A far more devastating storm is on the horizon. In the eye of it, well, it's a 37-year-old former school teacher named Hong Chen, and he has a war to start. Sure, in 10 years, a civil war will break out halfway around the world in the United States that will kill 600,000 Americans. It will be discussed, analyzed, and studied ad nauseum by historians around the world for centuries, but compared to the bloodshed, mayhem, and genocide that Hong Chen will instigate, that little American pickle? Well, it'll look more like a pillow fight in contrast. Hong stands on a small hill overlooking the village. He looks at all the people who are ready to follow him, maybe to their deaths. Most likely to their deaths, in fact. In a few short years, at least 20 to 30 million of them will be dead because of Hong. The people surrounding Hong are mostly poor, humble farmers. Most days, it's a struggle just to grow enough rice and wheat to satisfy market demand and also feed their families. Still, Hong is asking a lot of them to abandon everything they'd ever known. Most of the farmers are peasants, really. They don't own any land. They're considered subhuman by a ruling class far north of here. They don't look to Hong as a leader. No, they look to him as nothing short of their messiah. Things are very tense in 1850s China. There's famine and high unemployment, and both the cities and countryside of southern China are plagued with a horrible scourge. A scourge brought by a faraway queen named Victoria. Addiction to opium. The first opium war ended 10 years earlier, but Western powers are still carving up the spoils of that war. And also well on their way to starting another. Worse, the ruling Qing dynasty is forcing peasants to pay heavy taxes to help pay for that war. There's also a lot of inflation. The peasants look to Hong. He's going to make this all go away with his zeal, his fervor, but mostly his sword. Still, in this moment, Hong doesn't think about these earthly problems. He is, after all, sort of a god. In fact, he is the younger brother of Jesus Christ. Or so he thinks. He gives a signal to his lieutenant, Feng, to start marching. Hong thinks about how God in heaven picked him to lead China into a new era, a peaceful era, where people aren't starving, where people would no longer be subjected to cruelty by a dynasty that loves the wealth brought by foreigners and simply discards the millions who suffer daily, that all these people have put their very lives into his hands, hands that once belonged to a lowly schoolteacher. As Hong stares at his loyal disciples, maybe it's the intoxication of pure megalomania, but a rush of adrenaline flows to his face, transporting his mind. He drifts back to more than two decades earlier. He watches as a different group of villagers stare at him. They're just as poor as his troops. But instead of war paint on their skin and weapons in their hands, they smile placidly at Hong. They had pooled their money so he, young Hong, could do what no other peasant from their village had ever done before, embark on the long travel to Guangzhou and take the revered civil service test. How proud his parents were when he got the opportunity. If he passed, he could have funneled jobs and respect to his village. That's the way things worked in 19th century imperial China. But 
he had failed the exam. Not once, not twice, not even three times. Hung failed the test four times over 10 years. All that money and faith that his village and family had given him, it was gone. The sting of failure and shame jolts him back to the present. And now... He looks out at the throngs of peasants and their freezing cold faces, carrying the proverbial and literal pitchforks. Hong shakes off the tormenting memories of those exam failures. He focuses on his belief that those failures were a test. It was part of a divine plan. They were the reason he was here now, ready to change the course of modern China. The reason why he's about to instigate the Taiping Rebellion, a war with a body count more than World War I that most people don't know about. And it was all started by one man who anointed himself the king of a new Chinese dynasty and a supposed brother of Jesus Christ. But how does a young man from China, from a humble village, a man who was a dropout really, come to feel he was part Christian God and that he could buck thousands of years of tradition to start a brand new kingdom? And more importantly, how does a supposed descendant of Jesus Christ, a religious beacon of peace, forgiveness, and turning the other cheek, rationalize the bloody ravage of millions of his own people to do this. We'll get to that. But for now, all you need to know is that Hong Xiuqian, he's about to pick a little fight that will change the world. History consists of heroes and villains, and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. That pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid. But while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait. You'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. First, we need to back up. 37 years to be exact. There isn't a lot known about Hong's early years, but we know that he was born in 1814 in a small village of Hakka people. The Hakka are one of the Han Chinese people groups in Guangdong province, about 100 miles northwest of Hong Kong. Hong is the youngest of four children. He completes his basic studies as a child, but his rural farm family can't afford to pay for his schooling after he turns 16. So, like millions of other young men and women in southern China, he turns to the family business. In this case, field labor. But Hong does have one advantage. His parents are relatively better off than most of their neighbors, which isn't saying much. His father is a farmer, but he also owns some land. The ruling Qing dynasty appoints him as a constable for his village. And though his father is not Manchu, like most of the ruling class, he is well-respected in his tiny corner of the world. Hong's father is responsible for managing about 100 households in terms of collecting taxes and notarizing documents. So even though his son Hong works primarily as a field hand, he sees his dad's responsibilities and decides that he'd like to do that too. But 
maybe try for a bigger job than his father's. By the time he's a teenager, most of the village knows that Hong is exceptionally smart. They decide that the young man's ambitions could be a worthy investment, kind of like Bitcoin in 2011. In 19th century China, passing a civil service exam for government service is the key to success and potential wealth. It is a big deal. Anyone who passes this imperial test can travel outside of his village and bring lucrative contracts and jobs back to his town. They all see Hong as the very golden boy who can do this. But Hong's family and fellow villagers take this very seriously because it's really expensive. There are fees to take the test, and it costs money to travel the 30 miles to the big city and lodge there while taking them. Like taking the SATs, but knowing your entire neighborhood is literally banking on you to break a 1500 for their future. Yeah, uh, no pressure at all. So in 1836, at age 23, Hong travels from his village in Guangzhou, more commonly known today as Canton. As he sits around the crowded classroom, young Hong locks eyes with the other men sitting nervously at their seats. He doesn't see them as other impoverished men like himself, coming from villages like his across mainland China. He sees them as enemies, thieves trying to rob food from his family's mouth. He clenches his fist, narrows his eyes, and he begins. And fails. With the full knowledge that he has disappointed not only his family, but his entire village, Hong takes the long walk of shame back home, riddled with humiliation. But people can understand why Hong didn't pass. No matter how smart someone is, these civil service tests are not easy. They're based on the teachings of Confucius, teachings that are provided to the upper class from an early age, but not to the lower class, Hakka villagers, like Hong's people. Hong is sorely disappointed in himself but all the more determined to try again. Two years later, he takes the exams again. And then, in 1837, Hong fails the civil service exam for a third time. To make this almost impossible exam even more impossible, the size of the Chinese government has not expanded along with its population. This means that while the pool of applicants is steadily growing, the available positions in civil service are not. Only about 1% of test takers in Hong's class are expected to pass. In other words, Hong is in the company of hundreds of thousands of young people who also bombed. But of the millions who failed the official exams over the centuries, only one, as far as we know, ever envisions himself as a son of God and led the single bloodiest civil war in history. On his third visit to Guangzhou to take the exams, a Chinese Christian missionary hands Hong some pamphlets. He doesn't read them right away, but he does hold on to them. After failing the test for the third time, Hong, completely devastated and humiliated, goes back home and immediately takes to his bed. He complains that he's sick, and by all outward appearances, he is. With his mental health at a boiling point, Hong suffers from one of the most consequential nervous breakdowns in history. Paralyzed in his bed, completely broken from his repeated failures, Hong stares up at the ceiling. His forehead drenched from a fever that overruns his body, he sees the faces of his parents, his neighbors, his fellow villagers, averting their eyes in disappointment. Hong closes his eyes as a tear rolls down his cheek. He opens them again, but suddenly, a new hallucination stares back at him. And this one is different. 
He watches as he travels at magnificent speeds into a heavenly land to the east, where his father reveals that demons are destroying humankind. Wielding a special sword, Hong, with the help of his brother, fights the demons and a so-called king of hell. Following the long and epic battle, Hong remains in heaven and takes a wife, and they have a child together. Eventually, Hong returns to Earth and receives the title Heavenly King, Lord of the Kingly Way. There is actually a lot more to the fever dreams, including palaces, gold, and beautiful richly colored tapestries. There's even dragons. And yes, there's an old man with a long golden beard. There's also a middle-aged man in Hong's dreams. This man takes Hong to the top of a tower next to a palace and shows him all of the Earth and the wicked people in it. But this is not what Hong's family sees. They see their son and brother in bed for days, stricken by fever dreams. He yells about demons and claims to be the emperor of China. Sometimes he even sings and leaps out of bed, standing ready for combat with invisible foes. They call two doctors, but neither of them can actually find anything physically wrong with him. Hong's Lord of the Rings-level hallucinations go on for about 40 days. His family figures he has gone mad, another casualty of the insurmountable stress of an impossible bureaucratic exam. They take turns standing outside his room so he doesn't run out screaming into the village. Even so, people gossip that Hong has gone insane. And then Hong wakes up. The visions are gone, and he seems to be rested and relaxed people notice that he actually seems to be more chilled out than he's ever been before. His family breathes a collective sigh of relief. But Hong hasn't forgotten his visions and everything he saw and heard while having them. How could he? Demons, heaven, dragons? He writes them down. Then he goes back to work teaching school children in the village and sometimes reading fortunes for extra cash. He even goes back to studying for, you guessed it, that civil service exam. You would think that he should just accept that the door's closed. I mean, one 40-day apocalyptic hallucination, shame on me, right? That maybe Hong should just hang up his bureaucratic pipe dream and be a schoolteacher and be happy. It's a better station in life than most people he knows. But no, Hong wants more from life. He wants to be a standout, a somebody. Maybe the fourth time will be a charm. As Hong hits the books yet again, he doesn't forget about his visions. He just doesn't have a way of interpreting them. Yet. In 1843, Hong takes the test for a fourth time. And believe it or not, he fails. This time, though, Hong doesn't go into a fever trance or any of that. But he does think. A lot. And one day, his cousin comes to visit. This cousin notices some literature that Hong has on his bookshelves. He picks out the book that the missionary gave Hong years earlier, during his 1837 trip to Guangzhou. The two cousins pore over the works. As Hong learns of these New Testament texts, he quickly recognizes the parallels between his visions and the stories he's reading. Everything starts to make sense. He soon believes that during his illness, he had been transported to heaven. The old man he had spoken with was God, and the middle-aged man was Jesus Christ. Hong realizes that he is, in fact, the second son of God, sent to save China. In reading the portions of the Bible contained in the pamphlets, Hong decides that the portions of the Bible were actually about him. I mean, 
What a relief for Hong. At this point, he and his family thought he was nothing more than a mediocre villager who couldn't pass a single test in spite of taking it four times. He must feel so much better knowing that it turns out that he's actually Jesus Christ's brother and God's second-born child. Whew. Hong immediately baptizes himself, prays to God, and from then on considers himself a Christian. And he starts to spread his new doctrine among his friends and relatives. One of his most important converts is a schoolmate, a man named Feng Yinshan. In 1844, Hong loses his job after destroying the tablets to Confucius in the village school where he teaches. With no more school papers left to grade and nothing left to lose, Hong and Feng embark on a preaching trip to a neighboring province. Hong returns from their trip after a few months. But Feng remains, and like Paul to Hong's JC, establishes a religious group devoted to his new doctrines and calls it God Worshippers Society. It seems like everyone Hong and Feng talk to are ready to throw away thousands of years of Confucian and Buddhist tradition and convert to, well, something else. And they are, but not entirely because of Hong's personality. There are much bigger issues at play. And whether he realizes it or not, Hong just happens to come along at the perfect time for a rebellion. In 1847, Hong travels back to Guangzhou. This time, not for some lousy test. No, this time, it's to study Christianity with American missionaries. He spends two months studying, the only formal training he gets in the doctrines of Christianity. The American missionaries notice something peculiar about Hong. He's kind of selective. Instead of following all their teachings of the Bible, he sort of picks and chooses what he wants to learn. Sort of like a Bible buffet. Yeah, like he conveniently ignores New Testament ideas of humility and kindness. He has no use for what he considers pesky original sin or redemption or anything like that, really. Instead, he fixates on the darker stuff. Hong writes long notes about a wrathful Old Testament God, one who has to be worshipped and obeyed. Or else. But these missionaries notice that when Hong speaks to people, some of them are eager to hear more of what he's saying. His words resonate with everyday citizens. When the time comes for most converts to Christianity to be baptized, the missionaries refuse to do this for Hong. He's obviously very enthusiastic about learning, but they can't very well baptize someone who is, well, taking a lot of creative license with the gospel. It's possible that the missionaries are jealous of Hong's budding, religious personality, but most likely they just feel like he's probably not sticking to the curriculum. Not surprisingly, sources say that Hong's version of religion demands the abolition of evil practices such as opium smoking, gambling, and sex work. I say not surprising, given what's going on in China at the time. The fact is, the country is going through a major upheaval. The Qing Dynasty has been signing treaties with the United States and France. These treaties allow more foreigners and opium into China. Very simply speaking, this practice makes some money for the Qing Dynasty and a lot of money for England and France's merchants. But this doesn't trickle down to most of China's population, a population that has boomed over the previous decades. Now there's famine, and the Qing Dynasty has been too slow and ineffective to deal with it. Then there's the poppy paste. It also leads to millions of people in China being addicted to opium. The drug has been in China for centuries, but it was imported for medicinal purposes, and most people were not affected by overuse. But in the late 1700s, England began selling China opium that it grew in India. Again, 
Very simply speaking, it pretty much dumped tons of the drug into the Chinese market over the next century. By the time Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837, China was losing all of its silver to England in return for the highly addictive substance. Opium wasn't even legal in England. At the time of our story, hundreds of thousands of people in China are dying every day. Its economy is devastated. And of course, the Qing dynasty isn't helping very much. It's pretty much overwhelmed by foreign investors calling the shots and being forced to turn over several of its major port cities to be run by Europeans and Americans. As per human nature, the uncertainties of the time have made many of the people in China very vulnerable to utopian thinkers and messianic messengers. They want change. And here's this man, Hong, who comes along prescribing a perfect society, one they can have if they just follow his teachings and, of course, overthrow a dynasty by any means necessary. To Hong, this little life pivot makes way more sense, at least career-wise. He was thinking way too small. He has a new plan. I mean, why be a schoolteacher? And why be an imperial bureaucrat when you can go be God? Hong and his disciples take to the road, selling writing brushes and ink and spreading the good news about the heavenly kingdom as they go. People are excited. They're hopeful. Maybe, just maybe, if they can throw off the rule of the Qing dynasty, they can get a break from the terrible conditions under which they're living. It seems like the religion of the foreigners in their port cities is a powerful one. After all, these people who follow Jesus seem to be, well, successfully overtaking their country. The calculus was simple. Jesus equaled winning. Hong's followers may have thought this, but it's not hard to see why Hong himself was attracted to aspects of Christianity. It's a convenient alternative to the Confucian creed, which had so cruelly rejected him over and over again the one on the tests that he repeatedly failed. His movement grows fast in Southwest China, like the end of the movie, Joker, where Joaquin Phoenix becomes sort of a savior to all of society's violent outcasts. It's no surprise that many of Hong's first converts are other failed test takers, the ones that the empire looked square in the face and said, no, you are not good enough. To be part of Hong's team, you don't need to pass a test. All are welcome. Like most charismatic leaders in history, Hong doesn't mind rallying people to his cause. But he keeps very few people close, and one of those people is his old friend, Feng Yinshan. By 1849, Feng's God-worshipping society has expanded into four areas of China. It is Hong who shows him these areas on the map. Hong insists that these are strategic points in his upcoming battle against demons. Demons that Hong soon unveils as the Qing dynasty itself. Most people agree that at this point, Hong and Feng have created a very big cult. And as all cult leaders eventually do, Hong starts to tighten control of the lives of his followers. He starts to call himself the Taiping King, or roughly speaking, the King of Peace. He does some interesting things, like calling for the separation of men and women, even for those who are married. In fact, he separates them into distinctly trained armies and appoints his sister leader of the female battalion. He orders beatings for anyone who defies him. He also starts saying some pretty interesting things. For instance, he declares, People of this earth keep nothing for their private use, but give all things to God, for all to use in common then every place shall have equal shares and everyone be clothed and fed. 
If this sounds vaguely familiar, it's because Hong's teachings and actions will themselves be recycled in about 80 years by another savior of China named Mao Zedong. But more on that later. In 1850, alleging that Jesus had urged him to, quote, fight for heaven, Hong begins to arm his followers. Soon, the god worshippers are buying gunpowder in bulk and becoming organized by military rankings. And Hong and Feng begin to plot their rebellion in earnest. For any armed conflict, though, one needs weapons. And farm implements are definitely not going to be enough. There are, in fact, some wealthy families who are sympathetic to the god worshippers and believe in their ideals. They give money to them. But remember, this is dynastic China. If the imperial government knows that thousands of people are trying to acquire weapons, they'd be immediately rounded up and put in prison. So one of the larger families who supported Hong buys up as much local iron sources as possible. Their cover story? That the family plans to mass-produce farming tools. The iron is brought to the family's estate, where, at night, they and some of the more zealous rebels hammer out war equipment on anvils. A flock of noisy geese is kept near the workshop to drown out the sound. By now, Hong has merged his friend Feng's god followers into his own group and has between 10,000 and 30,000 ready to do what he says. The authorities are alarmed at the growing size of the sect and order them to disperse. They refuse, so they send a local force to attack. But Hong's recruits manage to defeat the imperial troops. They even kill a local magistrate. It's not just hallucinations in bed anymore for Hong. The toothpaste is out of the tube and blood has been spilled. Hong has two options. Get a grip, realize the errors of his wicked ways, and face the consequences for his murderous treason, or dig in his boots and double the ante. Unfortunately for history, he does the latter. Hong is even more emboldened. The government launches a full-scale attack against Hong in the first month of 1851, in Jintian, where the sect is based. Again, Hong's followers emerged victorious. They even beheaded the Manchu commander of the government army. With Hong, signs are everywhere. So this victory spurs him to declare the founding of a brand new dynasty. He calls it Taiping Tianguo, which means heavenly kingdom of great peace. The fact that this victory happens so close to his birthday makes him even more secure in his thought that he is somehow chosen by God to lead. Yep, the only thing more annoying than a narcissistic, maniacal tyrant is one that talks constantly about his birthday. After making this proclamation, Hong turns to look at his trusty Lieutenant Feng. If Feng is scared, he doesn't show it. He too feels he has the power of God behind him, a God who has shown himself to Hong after failing those exams, a God these men picture as having a golden beard and believe they hear telling Hong that the world is overrun by evil demons, a being who gives Hong a golden sword to vanquish these demons. And of course, there is the middle-aged man, Jesus Christ. Hong is sure that it's Jesus who gives him more detailed instructions on how to get rid of these demons. It's clear to Hong that he is, in fact, the second son of God, the younger brother of Jesus Christ. And this is why all these thousands of villagers chanting and waving their weapons will follow him to Nanjing and other cities to vanquish the enemy. But even though Hong thinks he is infused with the power of God, he cannot read minds. If he can, he would know what Feng is thinking. His trusted aide is thinking that a spiritual quest is one thing, 
But is Hong capable of leading a military campaign to overthrow an entire dynasty? A family that has ruled for hundreds of years, in a system that has ruled for thousands of years. Proclamations are a big deal in cults. And on that cold January day, his 37th birthday, Hong proclaims himself Tianwang, that is, Heavenly King, a slight variation on his other self-given names. The villagers all bow down to him. Then, they fall in line to join the rest of the thousands of rebels he's collected. If Hong and his followers know how many people are going to die on this quest, at least 20 million, maybe more, they might have thought twice about going on this journey. But right now, all they know is that Hong is going to lead them to glory and a new era of prosperity. Hong wants to capture the city of Nanjing. He wants the city for a couple of main reasons. One, it's highly symbolic because it has served as the capital city of half a dozen ancient dynasties. It's also an important city on the Yangtze River and one of China's major trading hubs. In 1831, the seventh emperor of the Qing dynasty put the viceroy in charge of the salt trade here in the Huai River area. Not only is it a strategic city for Hong to try to capture, but also it's where officials signed the aptly named 1842 Treaty of Nanjing. This put an end to the first opium war, but it was pretty one-sided to England's benefit. The treaty was not only unfair to China in practice, but the signing itself was offensive. It was signed in the city harbor on Royal Naval warships. This treaty also gave America and Europe control of several major port cities in China. It sent a clear signal to the majority of China's population that the Qing dynasty would continue to allow foreigners to cause chaos in their country and do nothing to help their desperate circumstances. Meanwhile, Hong's teachings continue to circulate from village to village, and these teachings really resonate with much of southern China. For example, he declares that the practice of footbinding in women is to be outlawed. It was, simply, too elite for his taste. He also demands a return to the Hakka language, which his people regard as the purest form of ancient Chinese. Hong has a knack for stirring up hatred against the ruling Manchus. People everywhere flock to hear his plan to return China to the Chinese. They are full of nationalistic sentiment and revolutionary spirit. And so, off they march. Hong and his thousands of followers, now known as Taipings, to overtake Nanjing. The Taipings soldier on deep into the Yangtze River Valley with such force and contagious bravado that, like the Pied Piper, whole villages find themselves joining them. To Hong's amazement, he finds his ragtag team consisting of a couple thousand rebels slowly becoming a regimented legion of fighters, numbering near a million. But Hong is organized and neatly divides his forces into separate battalions, consisting of men and women. Quite revolutionary to the time, this novice general considers men and women as equals, but forbids them from contacting each other. Yeah, not even married couples are allowed to have sex. With all that pent-up frustration, no wonder they're able to conquer land so quickly. But before Hong's followers reach Nanjing, the imperial army regroups and attacks them. Worse, when Hong is forced to retreat, he runs into a government militia, one specially trained to put down peasant rebellions he loses about 20% of his troops. One can only try to think of what's going through Hong's mind at this point, as he watches thousands of his own disciples, people who have given up their families and a peaceful existence living off the land to follow him and his supposed kingdom of peace, only to be massacred at the hands of the imperial army. Does he feel shame? Is it the same shame he felt as a young man being rejected over and over again by the empire he so desperately yearned to serve? 
Or is he so drunk off his own inflated sense of messiahhood that he feels nothing? Still, Hong has millions of peasants caught up in the fervor of his new kingdom and their mission to retake China from their elite overlords. And while it takes a couple of years from start to finish, this is a pretty short time, relatively speaking, for what happens next. Against all odds, in 1853, the Taiping rebels miraculously do in fact capture the central city of Nanjing. Hong immediately proclaims the city to be the capital of his new dynasty. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom officially has a capital city. The rebels have a strong military base. And even better for Hong, he has newfound legitimacy. Their capture of Nanjing energizes the Taipings. Hong sets himself up in the heavenly palace and begins to issue decrees to his subjects. One of his first orders is to exterminate the demons plaguing the land. In other words, get rid of the Manchu people who were leading the ethnic group in charge of the Qing dynasty. All Qing loyalists and foreigners are considered to be demons that need to be killed. So, right after capturing Nanjing, the Taipings slaughter more than 40,000 Manchu people. At last, Hong is the great man he always wanted to be. He leads hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people at this point. He has a capital city, his own version of the Bible, and most importantly to him, is both powerful and respected. There are just a few little problems. A few months earlier, as Hong and the Taiping marched by a city with no intention of invading, a Qing gunner fatally wounds Hong's best friend and trusted aide, Feng Yunshan. At the time, this angered the Taiping so much that within the space of two days, they breached the walls of this city and killed every single person residing there. Feng succumbed to his wounds a couple of months later. So while Hong holds the city of Nanjing, he's without his chief strategy maker. He needs a new military advisor. He picks a man named Yang Xiaoqing. And because there is so much work to do with organizing and training a new dynasty and a new army, he gives Yang a lot of power. And what happens when you give an underling a lot of their own power? Well, they start to get a lot of their own ideas. Yang is a quick learner, and he's very, very ambitious. Almost as soon as Hong infuses him with administrative power, Yang starts to think that he, too, could be a supreme leader. He starts making decisions without Hong's permission. He wants Hong's role as head of this new dynasty. But he needs to find a way to legitimize a claim to it. And he thinks... Why reinvent the wheel? Taking his cue from Hong's recent history, Yang starts to occasionally lapse into trances. Trances that he makes sure a lot of people see. He makes his voice sound different and says that it is actually that of the Lord talking through him. In one of those trances, Yang claims that God demanded that Hong be whipped for kicking one of his concubines. Okay, so we know what you're thinking. Taiping followers were supposed to abstain from sexual relations with the opposite sex. In reality, Taiping leaders maintained enormous harems. Hong himself had at least 60 girlfriends and a succession of wives, but we digress. Seeing this clear threat to his power, Hong has Yang murdered by yet another general, but then in turn, this general starts to get ideas about promoting himself. So Hong has him killed too. In spite of his increasing paranoia and the threats to his power, Hong continues to attract followers. He had done it. He had formed a neo-Chinese Christianity that resonated with the people of southern China. And he continues to put in place a series of programs designed to help rural peasants, like land-sharing initiatives. Again, if this sounds familiar, just hang on. 
Over the next 10 years, Hong presides over the biggest and bloodiest rural uprising the world has ever known. It's eventually called the Taiping Rebellion. After Hong takes Nanjing, he quickly spreads out and takes other major cities. It's an all-out civil war against the Qing dynasty. Every person in the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom is indoctrinated with the faith, given a weapon, and trained in warfare. During this decade, a series of escalating battles shreds the fabric of Chinese society. Taiping forces spread out from Nanjing, preaching and killing in equal measure. Cities are taken and retaken. It's absolute chaos. When battles are not being fought, farms are being burned. Livestock is slaughtered. Roads and bridges are cut. Wells are poisoned. And as with most wars, disease spreads rapidly, killing even more people. Before it's over, years later, Hong and his followers fight their way through 17 provinces and raise over 600 cities, all to exterminate Hong's demons. Eyewitnesses describe the Yangtze River Valley as littered with rotting corpses. But then, around 1860, the tide starts to turn. Despite their initial success, the Taipings are simply far too outnumbered to match the Qing forces. But that's not all. You could even say Hong is a victim of his own success. The rebellion catches the eyes of Western powers. Britain and France got even more access and trade advantages after the Second Opium War that ended, at least on paper, in 1860. They do not want their recent gains erased by the fighting. They send officers, supplies, and organizers to the Qing to help them win the fight. And it makes a big difference. In 1860, at the peak of their power, the Taipings capture Shanghai. Soon, though, they lose the city in a counterattack by Qing forces. After years of hard fighting, destruction of farmland, and even plagues, the countryside is absolutely ravaged. The Taipings begin to lose ground. In 1863, Qing forces retake Hong's capital city and fortress of Nanjing. But even though things look really bad for the Taipings, Hong remains in the city with his people. He preaches that God will defend the city from the demons at the gates. But the city is surrounded and forces have it cut off from supplies. It quickly runs out of food. In June of 1864, after 14 years of fighting, after creating and leading an entirely new dynasty, after taking at least five major cities in China and scores of smaller ones, at the age of 52, Hong dies. If Hong's death seems anticlimactic, it's because it kind of is. Some sources say Hong commits suicide by taking poison after Qing authorities finally gain a decisive military advantage when all hope of maintaining his kingdom is lost. However, a lot of other sources say he died of sickness. Hong's cousins say his illness was caused by eating manna, a command taken from the Bible that Hong had given to his people as they starved. This manna, or holy food, was actually just weeds. And in reality, Hong probably starved to death or ate a poisonous weed or grass out of sheer desperation to fill his stomach with food that was not available. Hong's inner circle, what was left of them, that is, buries him in a yellow silk shroud without a coffin in the bare ground, according to Taiping custom. They do this near the former Ming Imperial Palace, which is highly symbolic of ancient power for the Taipings. He is succeeded by his teenage son, Hong Tianguifu. But on July 30th, 1864, Qing forces descend upon Hong's headquarters and dig up his body. And even though it's obviously decomposed, the troops cut off his head and burned the corpse. Then they reburied it. And then they unburied it. Again. The last thing they want is for him to become a martyr. 
They've had more than enough of this enigmatic leader. So, Qing commanders order them to present the body to a high-ranking official to confirm that it is really him, and that he is really dead. He is. So, they cremate Hong's body. But this still isn't the end of it. In a bizarre act of vengeance and overkill, Hong's body, or what's left of it, is blasted out of a cannon. This way, they think his remains will have no eternal resting place. This is the ultimate punishment for leading this chaotic insurrection that lasted more than 15 years. Hong's young son succeeds him on the throne, but just nominally. A few months later, the Qing army finds him and executes him, along with about 100,000 other Taipings. Sporadic Taiping resistance continues in other parts of the country until 1866. But for the most part, the heavenly kingdom of great peace is over. The Taiping Rebellion led to more deaths than World War I and is considered to be the third bloodiest war in modern history, only behind the collapse of the Ming Dynasty in the 17th century and World War II. If Hong could have seen his future in those visions he had after failing the exam for the third time, he might have considered taking a different path in life. Or would he? Hong's rebellion promised agricultural success and prosperity. It did not deliver. But the premise of it, and a lot of Hong's doctrines, actually persevered after his death. It's true, he created death and destruction that forever altered the destiny of modern China. But Hong showed that rebellion by the working class could work in the modern age. Remember those points about land reforms and sharing of resources? In the 20th century, these were some of the lessons that Chinese communists took from the Taipings. The two rebellions, in fact, had much in common. But one key difference. While Hong started lucky and then got unlucky, Mao Zedong had it the other way around. But the question remains, how? How was someone like Hong able to come along and lead an upheaval as massive and destructive as the Taiping Rebellion? Shame has something to do with it. Of course, the obvious psychological answer is Hong was very painfully and publicly rejected by the very empire he was so desperate to join by failing the civil service test four times. If they weren't going to love him, he was going to destroy them by any means necessary. Unfortunately, almost 30 million people had to die because of it. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Julia Bricklin. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.